dances, but uh, it left quite a mark on me. It was powerful, as if I had felt the secret door somewhere in my mind, and I was completely helpless what to do about it. It has taken me the better part of my adolescence to figure out what that meant and where that belongs in my life. <laughs> was quite confusing and frustrating to have a piece of something that I felt was important but I didn't know where it belonged or how to proceed with it. And um, when I finally stumbled into Buddhist teaching proper, there's an echo, isn't there? A few years later, um, I was offered these teachings freely. I remember having come from a Zen background and stumbled into my first Thai monastery here in this country, being a visitor uh, after a retreat, going over to the monastic community. And then there was Sunday, the Thai community from London came up and fed the monks and nuns. And um, we were told that we could, you know, tag along at the end of it, there would be something left over for us. I think, well, wonderful, great. So, grateful for this. Never been to a monastery before. And then these Thai people came and they insisted on actually feeding, not just the monks, but it just didn't stop at the end of the last nun. They didn't stop. They just kind of kept feeding on the lay people. I said, well, this is a mistake. Look, I don't really belong here. I don't, uh, I'm just a visitor like you. And they said, well, it doesn't matter. You know, you said, well, but actually... I've already just begun with this and said, it doesn't matter, you know, you just, you receive our food, you know, we've come here to be generous and you're practicing. So, and I remember being completely, <coughs> it was painful for me because I suddenly realized um, where I come from, Switzerland, you don't give people food. You know, when you give them food, it means you, they, they can't, they don't have enough to support themselves. So they but these people, they were just feeding me, not because they liked me or because I was such an excellent meditator. They, in fact, had no clue who I was. They just felt because I lived there and practiced that I was worthy of their generosity. And I remember eating my first alms food with tears dropping into my little... I had a little salad dish there with which I... So I remember kind of eating this and um, feeling shamed in some ways, and feeling touched at the same time. And um, I've learned a lot from these people later, in years to come. Um, I've learned a lot to uh, receive generosity and to give my energy and my intelligence and my heart in turn. That's for many years of my adult life, that was how uh, I lived as a monk. And I was very grateful for this. I had learned to consider what it takes for me to be able to do this, yeah? what I need in terms of dedication and integrity and generosity on my term, uh, on my, uh, in turn, from my, how I fed back into a relationship. And I deem this to be very powerful. This is... This is actually, whether you believe this or not, this is why we sit here. Yeah. There's a few famous names in monastery and Buddhist history, but the guys who carried this through were basically the nameless men and women who built these monasteries, offered the money to print the books, fed the monks and nuns, and the, through many, many centuries. 
And that is the reason why we sit here. We don't sit here because of a few books or a few stones piled up in impressive ways somewhere in Asia. We sit here because there is a living tradition that was maintained by people's generosity. You may not think yourself a Buddhist, you may not think yourself uh, connected to that lineage, but the, true, the truth is that you can sit here, this house, these people, Jaya and myself, the people who make this retreat possible, all this only happens in the larger context of such a lineage, of such uh, a transmission. And that transmission goes by many names, and like, like all these transmissions, you know, um, it's like family. It's people who keep, whom you keep me meeting and you keep having arguments with. You know. It's not always nice, or it's not always agreement. You know. It's not one beautiful monolithic uh, concord through the centuries. Buddhist history is full of squibbles, like family arguments. But you kind of keep meeting and you keep affirming relationship. And that's why we're here. So, if you find anything in what we do is useful, Try to consider how you can make possible that this continues. How you can take, by all means, take whatever you can from what we do, from what you learn here, from what you find here, the place, the resources, the information, the books, the talks. Um, take all of this home as much as you can. Translate it into your lives and consider how you can support this. Become a supporter of Gaia House. Make sure you're on the mailing list. Um, Offer your skills, your help. Make sure that people like Jaya and me can exist. It's a strange thing to exist on donations or generosity at a time when things that don't have a price tag have no value. Yeah. It's a really weird thing to do. Generosity that generally translates either into a tip yeah, or into a bonus yeah, in these days. And Dana is not one or not the other. It's, it's neither of them. It's somewhere in between. Yeah. It's something that makes possible that uh, this place exists and people like Jaya and myself exist. So if you have any inkling that this is good for you, if you feel that you're receiving something and that you would like uh, this to go on in the future, then um, help make sure that Gaia continues to exist and make sure that guys like us can continue to exist. We appreciate your generosity. In fact, we need it. It's interesting to be... Is this okay? In yeah. It's interesting to be reminded that... <coughs> that uh, generosity is what enables me to exist and that's true on different levels but it reminded me of um, as a nun I think, I think the, the, the figure is seven years that it takes for all the cells of your body to renew themselves and uh, getting to that point of living on dharma in a monastery and uh, realising that every cell in my body had been actually at that point supported by dharma which was a really lovely thing to realise. But actually it's the case for all of us, um, really, that we're here because of the generosity of other people, when people who've looked after us, supported us in our life, helped us along. And I, I was just thinking as we were sitting before...
before talking about this, I feel kind of sad that we always give the, a little Dharma talk at the end of a retreat, and what would it be like to actually think about generosity at the beginning of a retreat? Because we're all really sitting here cooking in a, in a tradition, in an ambiance of generosity. And you've probably felt some of that while you're, you're here at Gaia House. I was really touched yesterday morning when I walked into the, into the um, dining room at the beginning of the walking meditation and saw somebody had left a whole pile of Easter egg there. And I, many of you might have had a similar feeling. It's just the heart just goes, oh. And um, it's, just a, it's a very beautiful way to, to connect with one another, to, to, um, both as a, as a giver and a receiver. And both of those are a practice as well. As the Kinshina was saying, it's quite a challenge for a lot of us to actually receive. But to um, encourage this atmosphere of practice and in, in the world which so badly needs it, that um, we can be open both to the giving and the receiving. I was going to give a talk on Dharma last year at one point in the States, and the person I was, I was teaching with said, oh, I just found this really good thing yesterday online that somebody, somebody had said, that it's not generosity unless it hurts. And I thought, I can't say that in a, in a talk on Dharma. But actually, it, it really triggered some um, reflection in my mind, and I did end up sharing a bit about it. And uh, one of the retreatants came in with a story about being in his first day in a new job, which he wasn't particularly enthusiastic about and feeling really resentful and, and aversive towards the people in the, in the office and so on. And then he, he thought, I really can't stand this. And when there was a break, I, he, he decided he was going to go out and buy himself some cookies because he really needed cookies to get through the morning. So he went out and bought himself a whole stash of, of cookies. And then he was driving back to work and... Um, and as a good Buddhist, he, he thought, I really, you know, I can't just hoard all these cookies and stuff my face with cookies for the rest of the day. So he got back to the office and kind of slightly begrudgingly uh, offered them around to the other people there. And he said at that point, something completely transformed for him in his experience of the day and his, in his connection with the other people. And, uh, you know, I think that there is something about that... Um, I don't think generosity hurts. I think generosity should actually, it should bring joy to the heart. It does bring joy to the heart. But sometimes it's like easing open that place of constriction feels, feels a little painful and, or, or a little uncomfortable, like you know, um, overcoming that sense of uh, this is, I shouldn't be being given to, I shouldn't be receiving, or that sense of I'm, I'm slightly anxious that I don't want, giving seems seems vulnerable or I feel um, uncertain about this or, uh, so I think it's and, and I think um, creating this atmosphere of happiness, trust celebration in life is really crucial as a support for, it's like it's a, it's a, it's a fast path into a peaceful um, collective clear mind and it's why this is one of the the paramis, the, the qualities that the Buddha perfected in his previous life that ripened his mind for awakening. And so um, the more that we do this ourselves, the better. So I'm really grateful that this, this tradition kind of keeps that alive. So 
I encourage you to think about it and enjoy whatever you do in terms of dharma. But we, um, it's almost, uh, our retreat is almost over. I'm glad we got some sun. Uh, I think we deserve it somehow. <laughs> if you, um, I get my familiar avuncular feelings at this stage of the retreat. I, I, um, I kind of feel it's too short. We were doing a post-mortem this morning over breakfast and thinking what we what we have done differently or what we could have changed. Came up with some points. And, um, I always have a feeling it's a shame we've only just begun. Now these poor people, they have limbered up and now we have to send them home again. I feel like I want to, s- to make a dharma bodies for you all. <laughs> Go into sort of a paternal number. Um, you can um, think what you want about my diagnosis, but I trust basically that you will take home what is needed for you and you will know how to translate it into your life somehow. Um, I would like to caution you to be too evangelical about any newfound faith, discoveries, tools, or so. So please do not prioritize, <coughs> particularly not to your spouses or your kids or so. It's, it generally doesn't go down well, uh, and it's highly ineffective just to be true. Yeah. Uh, these guys will know how, what's, what's going on with you as soon as you open the door anyway, and they will see, they will find a lot more um, conviction in the way how you are rather than how you tell them they should become now. (laughs) So, uh, if you can, be subversive, do one of these Buddhist soft-cell numbers, smile, make make them curious, be enigmatic, be patient, do some, you know, conspiratorial meta-practice. This is generally a lot more effective. When you go home, do not construe this to be the right sort of world here on retreat and make the rest of your life basically one big meditational obstacle. Your kids' meditation hindrances, your husband's meditation hindrances, your job, just one meditation. Don't do this. Please understand the artificiality of this situation. There's something about a laboratory condition we're trying to do. I told you this is much about safety, about focus, about support, so that we can practice under kind of test tube <laughs> conditions, <coughs> being with our minds, making things on the outside safe enough so that we can go to the edges on the inside where things are getting a bit wobbly or so, that we can have the courage to actually investigate, hold, touch more deeply. You won't be able to do that to the same degree at home. That doesn't mean that you cannot practice at home, or it doesn't mean that the place (coughs) where you live or work or relate to the uh, people who are close to you is not 
a formidable place of practice. The yoga of relationship I have come to uh, have deep appreciation uh, of. It is a powerful yoga, the yoga of responsibility. Uh, do pay obeisance to agenda vajra, the bodhisattva of compassionate time management. <laughs> There's many ways you can practice. Be creative. You know? Do not construe this to be the right situation and your life to be the wrong situation. Translate. The magic lies in translations. It's your privileged lot, both in terms of living here in the Northern Hemisphere, in the UK, where things are fairly safe, and, um, and also our time. We have so much access to help, resources, teachings. Consider most of the people who were our teachers, they didn't have access to so much teaching as, as you have. Yeah. I mean, this is absolutely new. You know, it's not long ago that Buddhists were not even talking to each other much. They, the ones were hiding behind their mountains and the others on their islands, and they just didn't meet, you know. And when they met, they were quite suspicious, you know. They look different, they do different things, they follow different texts. Um, this is all very, very new. It's a, it's, a, it's a fabulous time to live in and to practice. And I like you to be affirmative of the conditions in your life you have chosen for varieties of reasons and to practice in those conditions. I've lived many years like Jaya in monasteries. In fact, for me, it's the larger part of my adult life, 20 years. And I'm grateful for every day in there. And I'm also conscious that you can miss it, even in the monastery. Yeah. Do not construe this to be the ideal place where you are not, and your life and where you are to be the place where practice is not possible. Um, the magic of this mindfulness, of this vipassana, of this insight and stillness practices is to translate it into your day into your life. That's the magic. It's the continuity. As Jaya said yes, last night, you know, the continuity of sitting regularly is more magic than heroic efforts of sacrificing a whole weekend, getting a knee pain, and then that was it for meditation for the next <laughs> six um, Be creative in turning you know, an intelligence to transforming a situation into a situation of practice. There's something called the Sampajanya, which is something we could translate as a wisdom in action. You know, if, if Prajnapanya is the big wisdom and the strategy, then Sampajanya is the small wisdom, it's the tactic. Yeah? It's the, that which immediately transforms your situation on very hands-on you know, terms. So, one definition of Sampajanya is that you ask two questions. In formal practice you ask, what exactly am I doing? What is my meditative task? And in so-called informal practice you ask another question, which is equally magic. It says, how can I turn this situation I am in right now into a situation of practice? Yeah. What is it I could learn here? Now, the universe generally orchestrates quite a few opportunities for learning. Maybe this is not the moment to practice samatha. Maybe this is the moment to cultivate the perfection of patience, yeah? 
forbearance is the old English word, it's actually closer to the Pali. Being able to bear something without reducing my sensitivity and without going into reactiveness. Maybe that's what I can practice here. Or I can practice generosity. Or I can practice just continuity. I can practice um, not doing things only for immediate rewards. You will have heard that, you know, even psychologists tend to rate the capacity to postpone gratification as a sign of maturity, you know? let alone Buddhist meditators. You know? So, your life is full of opportunities to practice strength, resilience, sensitivity, generosity, patience, mindfulness, non-reactivity, yeah, loads of the stuff. It's all there, buried somewhere in Buddhist teaching, awaiting to be not just translated into the language of the way you think about yourself, but also to be translated in your lives. And mistrust the mind that tries to make what you experience to be something wrong. This is the wrong thing. I need to get rid of this thing before the right thing can begin. Whenever this mind comes up, mistrust it. When it wrongs you, yeah. When you're having a wrong experience, or a wrong state, or when you are worse, when you're a wrong person, you know, red alert. Anybody who tells you you're a wrong person, outside or inside, don't believe them. Yeah. You have to get a good, long, hard look into that face that tells you that. Yeah. Some of the faces inside we have internalized are not our friends. You have to just assume that some of the guys you carry around here are not your friends. So what do you do with people who are not your friends? Well, you don't trust them. You don't go home with them. You don't take their sweets. You don't obey. You say, okay, thank you, stop. Yeah. <coughs> so you meet parts of yourself and you relate to them as you would, with all sanity, relate to people who are hostile outside. Yeah. And you don't give them your energy, your time, your attention, your faith your confidence. And you come back and park, learn to park. It's not about how still you get, it's about how skilled you get at putting things down. They keep creeping back up on you. That doesn't change, even if you're a monastery. You, know, you have to build parking lots, teach novices, organize visas, make sure the termites don't eat your library. There's tons of stuff. <laughs> You get more skilled at putting things down and realigning yourself and say, okay, I'm going to touch the suchness of my own being right now. You know, not who I am and what I need to be and what I haven't done yet and what, what is too much, what she thinks of me and all this. No, I can park all this and see what is left when all this is gone. What is left if it's all parked? You know? There's a heart that beats, there's a body that is sensate. There is a, something that is resonant with other beings and something that intuits truth, intuits health, intuits sanity. So don't forget that. Whatever you've said, okay to forget, but don't forget that bit. There's something in there that's sane, it's completely whole, it wants to wake up, it's curious, it's sensitive, and it can love, it can connect in loving ways, in the four forms of empathy. Compassionate, friendly, 
joyous and equanimous. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.